You have to go way back. Not, not just to the thousands, not to the 90s, not to the 80s, not to the 70s, not to the 60s, not to the 50s. Not to an, any earlier time in American history, not to the 16th century or the 15th century. Not even to the 1st century. Not back to the ancient Greeks, not back to the ancient Israelites. You have to go way back to get to the good old days. You have to go way back to get to the good old days. Because all, none of us have actually experienced the good old days, the good days that God intended for humanity to experience. And yet we all long for it. We all long for, for relationships that are, man, there's just no more friction. There's no, there are no more difficulties. There's no more, there's no more conflict. We long for, uh, to live in a place that is beautiful. I was just hearing somebody talk before the service about somebody sent him a picture of a great view. I mean, we, we, want, a, we want a room with a view. We want a, we want a house with a view. We want, we want to see beautiful things. We want to eat great food. Some of us like eat a lot of great food, and that's, that's good. That's what we're looking for. We're longing for that. We want to live in a place where we're going to dwell with God. And we're going to experience all of God's blessing upon us. We long for that. And what I hope that you will want after, by the time we're done today, is that you will want those good old days again. And that you will understand how God brings them for us, how God makes them for us. Because we can't go back to the good old days, but we can get a picture of what the days to come will be like and of how we ought to live now from what happened way back in the beginning. That's where we have to go to find the good old days, in the beginning. Uh, so we'll be in Genesis 2. Genesis 2. And what I want you to see first is that God formed a man. God formed a man. Genesis 2. I'm going to start reading in, in verse 4. Read verses 4 through 7. Genesis 2, 4 through 7. God formed a man. That's what it says. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens... When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and it was watering the whole face of the earth the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Uh, verse 4 is the first of... Uh, of, a, of a few verses throughout Genesis that says these are the generations of. And, and that's kind of a way that the writer of Genesis, that Moses uh, structured the book of Genesis, uh, where hey, it kind of signifies, hey, we're moving to a new story now. We're reading, moving to a new segment. Kind of looks back at what God had already done in creating the world and making he the heavens and the earth. But then it also introduces us and, and really should create in us an anticipation for, hey, what happened next? Because when I read Genesis 1... Uh, that's not exactly like the world that I'm living in. So, so how, how, is, how did the world that was described in Genesis 1, how did it get the way that it is? And so we start here uh, in, in verse 4. And then it says in verses 5 and 6, it says, There was no bush of the field. There was no bush of the field, no small plants. I think uh, one translation picks up the idea of there were, there were no wild plants. There was no cultivated grain. I think this is a, and then it also said that there was no rain. I think this is kind of a, a foreshadowing of what's to come. What, what people in our time, what an Israelite would understand is going to happen in the future is that after sin happens, the man is going to have to, to work against thorns and thistles. He's going to have to work really hard to cultivate grain and to work really hard to coax food from the earth. And then there's going to be rain. There's going to be rain of judgment that's going to bring a flood that's going to destroy all humanity. But... What, what verses 5 and 6 are telling us is, hey, there's no man to cultivate the ground. There are no wild plants. There, there, you're not having to, to, to raise up crops to eat. There's no rain. There's no rain that's going to destroy the world. This is before all that happens. This is, but this, is when, this is before sin entered the world. This is before judgment entered the world. This was when everything was still good and God. In this place where there's nothing, there's nothing but springs coming up from the land to water everything that's around. All, all this great vegetation that God has made. It says, comes down he forms a man. That word there, it says there in verse uh, 7, it says the Lord God formed the man. Uh, the, the Lord 
And th- those words there are the two most common words in the Old Testament in the scriptures for the God of the Bible. Uh, the first one is, uh, the, the one that's most commonly used in Genesis 1 is that word that's translated God there is Elohim. And that is significant because it points to God as the creator, the creator of everything that is, the maker of, of he- the heavens and the earth. Our God is the creator of everything. When Israelite heard this, when we hear this, we should, we should think about when we see the, just see the word God, understand the meaning that is behind that, that God made all things. He made all things good. God is the one who brought order out of chaos. He is the one who filled the earth with life. He is the one who established authority and goodness. He is the one who made mankind in his image. He is the creator of all things. But then there's a new word mentioned there, and that's the word Lord. Uh, In the Old Testament, in most translations, typically, uh, that word will be in small caps. You see that there, maybe in your Bible? That word is Yahweh. And that is the the covenant name of God. That is is the God, uh, that that points to God in his covenant-keeping nature. That is his steadfast love, the, the God who saves. The same God who created all that is, that created mankind, is the same God who brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt. Our God, as Christians, those who worship the one true God of the Bible, our God is the one who created all things. The one from his grace, from his mercy, from his steadfast love and his goodness has saved us, has brought us out of darkness into the light, has brought us out of slavery into freedom. This is who God is. And this is the God who is here in Genesis 2. This is the one true God that we worship, the God of Jesus Christ. And it says that the Lord God came down and he formed the man from the dust. That word formed is is the word that is commonly used for when a potter is forming pottery. That's why human beings are often, uh, that that is the metaphor that's used throughout the Old Testament of, of God forming Mankind forming them like a potter forms a, a pot, like pot, a, a potter forms a, a, a vessel for his use. And so God comes down and he he forms man from the dust. You can you can I hope that you can sense the tenderness and the care that God takes in forming human beings. And then it says that that God breathed into him into him the breath of life. There is no description of any other creature made like this. Human beings are unique. Human beings, only mankind is made in the image of God. Only mankind is formed from the dust and then has God breathe into, breathe into us, living, uh, making us a living being, breathing into us life. Only human beings have the capacity for moral judgment in the way that, the way that we are and being made in God's image. Only human beings have a capacity for a relationship with God. God came down and he formed man from the dust and breathed it and he became a living being or a living soul made in God's image. God did that. Now then, where I want to go next is I want to go to a place that demonstrates for us how we should respond to what God has done. To the uniqueness of human beings made in God's image. Flip over in your Bible to Psalm 139. And part of the reason why I want to go here is I want to... Number one, I want you to pick up that there's a definite difference between where the world that we're living in and the way, and the way that it is and the way that it was supposed to be. You know, something has changed. But then at the same time, I want you to understand that there are some things that haven't changed. Human beings are still made in the image of God. They're still formed this way. They, are still, they still have this kind of uniqueness as the only creatures made in God's image. So look at Psalm 139. And just look at verses 13 and 14. Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. This is a psalm of David. This is what he says. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. You see that? You pick up that word there in verse 13. You formed. You formed my inward parts. What's David talking about? It's the same word. Adam was formed in the garden. God formed Adam. And David is saying the same way that you formed Adam out of the dust. You formed me in the womb. 
And he's saying that about us. He's saying every human being who is, who is made, who is created, is made in this very significant, unique way that God created the first man. Made this way, knitting. You can see the, the loving care, the same kind of care, the same kind of tenderness with which God made Adam in the garden. He made David in the womb in the same way you were made. You were made in God's image the same way. You were knit together. You were formed. And, and then what does he says? Verse 14, how's our, what's our response? I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So you're fearfully and wonderfully made. I think fearfully could just as uh, easily be translated awesomely. So I want you to get the big head here. But you are awesome. You are wonderful. You are, you, you are, your awesomeness and your wonderfulness causes me to praise God. And when I think about my awesomeness and my wonderfulness, I'm supposed to praise God. That's the response. Praise your creator. Praise the one who made you. Praise the one who formed you, who knitted you together in the womb. The one who, who came down and created your soul. He is the, your creator. You know, that when we preach the Bible, lots of times we have, to, we have to preach the truth. Not lots of times, all the time we have to preach the truth. We have to preach the truth. And lots of times when we preach the truth, that means that we recognize uh, repeatedly, that we are sinners. And we are. But without denying that, we also recognize other truths, that all human beings are made in the image of God. All human beings are made in the image of God. And you know, so, so you, are, you are awesomely and wonderfully made. And you know what? So is your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Because your neighbor is made in the image of God. Your, your neighbor, the person who's next to you, the person that you work with, the person that is difficult to get along with, the person that you uh, find has annoying habits and, and, and uh, even in some ways uh, makes it difficult for you to love them, they're made in the image of God. They're awesome. They're wonderful. There's this really neat little part. I, I couldn't find it, but I remember it because it's one of the things that stood out to me. is In the screw tape letters, uh, you know, this is... Uh, this is, this is one of the things that, that Lewis, C.S. Lewis says. He says, uh, you know, that person uh, who has, uh, whom you don't like, who's sitting in front of you in church, who, who gets on your nerves, you know, one day that person is either going to be so, so transformed into something ugly and horrific because of judgment, of the judgment of God that you are... It's going, to be, it's going to be frightening to you. Uh, or they're going to be transformed into someone so glorious. And in in, in that if they appear to you now, you would be tempted to worship them. Do you think about human beings made in God's image that way? Do you think of your neighbor as made in God's image? That they are fearfully and wonderfully made. And you know what? So is your enemy. Your enemy is made in God's image. It's difficult. Jesus told us to love our enemies. That, remember, remember we've talked before about how we were created and Christians really fulfill this and being created to represent God. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He makes the sun to shine on the evil and the good. He makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So love your enemy. They are made in the image of God. Do good to those who do evil to you. That's a high calling. But if we remember, remember that we were made in the image of God. Let's praise God. Amen. Praise God. We were fearfully and wonderfully made. Same way that he formed Adam, he formed David, he formed us. Let's go back to Genesis 2. And God formed a man. Picking up in verse 8. God planted a garden. Seems like a strange thing to say. I was, I was writing out my, you know, kind of my headings for my sermon. I was like, God planted a garden. Look there in verse 8. We'll read verses 8 through 14. It says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil 
A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that, uh, that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Medelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. You know, what's being pictured here is God, God creates this garden. He creates uh, everything about this garden is kind of is supposed to bring to mind images of like a, a garden sanctuary, like a garden temple. It says that he, he created and he formed it. And in this place, he, he created every tree that is good for food, that is good to look at. I want you to try and use your imagination. All, every kind of fruit tree that exists, that is good to look at, not the ugly ones, just the ones that are good to look at. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Everything, everything that is delightful. Yeah, you ever have, uh, you ever go to a nice restaurant and they bring out the dessert cart and you're going to eat dessert and you, you have a hard time making up your mind? I mean, imagine that only a million times more. Every tree that is good to look at, that is good for food, it's there. You can have as much of it as you want. It, this is this, this is paradise. This is paradise. A garden sanctuary. And it says there uh, that, uh, that there are rivers flowing out of it. That's the same picture that's picked up in Ezekiel 47 and, and Revelation 22 for the end time temple that is, that, that is going to come. That is going to come. That is going to make, make the world into a new kind of sanctuary where God dwells with his people. That is the idea of a temple, that God dwells with his people. Where God dwells with a man here in the garden. It is this garden sanctuary where God comes and dwells with a man. And there is nothing but water flowing from it. Water that irrigates the land. Water that makes everything green. Water that make, gives life to the human beings, to the, to the animals, to the, to the plants. That, that makes everything flourish. This is a place of beauty and delight and flourishing. And says... That one of the rivers flows through Havilah. And no, I don't know where that is. But it says that there's a river that flows there and there's good gold there. There's good gold and there's bedelium and there's onyx. This is, uh, this, th- these pictures are all picked up in the temple. So if you go and look where the, the temple is described uh, in the time of Solomon. Where there are, there are pomegranates engraved all over the temple. And there are gourds and open flowers. It's a garden. And there, there is gold everywhere. The closer you get to God's presence, the more gold there is. The more there is this picture of this good, pure gold where everything is covered in gold. And the onyx stones would have, would have, been the, would have called to mind these, these big caps that would go on the priest's shoulders. Where the, the names of the people are engraved where the priest represents the people before God. And even the bedelium. This is this aromatic resin. Reminds you of the, the smell, the smell of the temple, where there was this there were, where there was this holy incense going up to God, representing the prayers of the people. Here is this this garden sanctuary where the God comes down, and He dwells with a man. You know that's the good old days. That is the picture of of a great world, a perfect world. Where there is this garden sanctuary. where uh, And that is what we are going to. That is the picture of Revelation 22. That we are going to a garden city where God comes down and dwells with man. And there is a river that flows from the dwelling, from the throne of God. And, and there is, is a tree of life that spans the river. And there are 12 different kinds of fruit. Uh, the, the whole picture is, is that this is, where we, this, is, this is what we lost when, when man sinned. When all mankind sinned in Adam, this is what we lost. We lost living in a place of of luscious delight, sweetness, wonder, happiness, joy. And we exchange it for a lie to disobey God. But what our Savior, Jesus Christ, has done is, is win for us a new Garden of Eden, a new paradise. And that's what he says to a thief on a cross. That's what he says to a thief on the cross when that thief, when he turns to Jesus Christ in faith, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise.
paradise. That's how, that's how the Greek translation translates this, this garden, this paradise. That's where we're headed if we trust in Jesus Christ. Now, if we have this garden sanctuary, there's also a priest who lives there. Look at verses, verse 15 through 17. It says, uh, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The, the man is pictured here. Verse 15, he says that he is, he is told to, to work and keep the garden. These two words, work and keep, also have this kind of temple language. They, the, the other places that these words are used together, someplace like Numbers 18, where it says that the priest, the priests are supposed to serve and, in the temple and guard the tabernacle from defilement. Keep anything that might defile, anything that might be unclean from coming into the garden. This is what the man's supposed to do. He's supposed to serve God there in the garden. And you know, if, if you want to know what men are supposed to do now, it's working and keeping. We are supposed to be cultivators of our, our place, the, the, the areas that God has given us. This is what we are supposed to be doing. We are supposed to be serving God. God made you to be a gardener and a guardian over what he entrusted to you. You know, every place that you serve, you serve where you serve in your home. You're supposed to be one who is there cultivating life in your home so that the other people who live there will flourish. So that your wife will flourish and your children will flourish. You're supposed to be cultivating life there. You're supposed to be working to make sure that they, they know God's word, that you pray there. That, that virtuous behavior that, that it is promoted there. And you're supposed to be a guardian. You have to guard, you have to guard every portal into your home. That means you have to guard the front door, the back door, the side window. Means you have to guard the television and the iPod and the iPad and the computer. All those things need to be guarded. You are supposed to protect your house, your garden. You keep those things that defile people out. That's your role. And in the workplace, everybody who works above you, everybody who works below you, you are working for their flourishing. You are working to bless them. Every person that you serve, you are working to represent. You are a, like a priest before God. You are one who serves in God's service to represent God to people, to mediate God's grace, to be a servant in God's name. You're serving. And you know what? You are responsible for that. You are responsible for your house. You are responsible for your area. You are a steward over it. You are supposed to be serving there and guarding there. And so, if you look around at the area that you were supposed to be in charge of and it's a mess, you have to take responsibility for that. You do. You have to take responsibility for that and, and confess that to the Lord. And you may need to confess to others. You may need to confess to your wife or your children. You may need to confess to your boss or to your employees. You may need to say, hey, listen, I haven't been doing my job. Will you forgive me? You know, if you don't know what it, what it means to lead family worship at your house, you know, you can talk to a pastor, you can talk to one of the other godly men who are here and just say how you do it. And then you can gather everybody into your living room at your house and you just say, listen, I haven't been doing my job. I don't know that I'm going to get this right. But from now on, I'm going to work so that we're reading the Bible and praying together. And, you know, you may have to apologize to your wife. You may just have to say, listen, I have not been laying down my life for you. I have not been loving you like I'm supposed to love my own body. And you say, listen, will you forgive me? I'm going to try and do better. And I'm going to fail over and over again. But, but I want to love you the way that I'm supposed to. You know, one of the biggest things, uh, you know, for fathers. Fathers, it's very difficult to apologize to your children, isn't it? Yeah, that can be very difficult. But you might need to apologize to your children. Get your children together and say, listen, children, I have not been doing my job. The Lord tells me that if I love you, then I'm supposed to discipline you. 
and I have not been disciplining you. So, but from now on, because I love you, and because I love God, whenever you disobey, I'm going to correct you, and I'm going to spank you, and I'm going to train you to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, for some of us, even if you have adult children, your, your opportunity to cultivate godliness is not over. You know, you, can, you still have to relate to them as adults. And you may have to say to them, hey, th- these are some of the things that I did wrong while I was raising you. And these are some of the things that I did right while I was raising you. Remember these things that I taught you. And you can still speak to them about the Lord. You know, if you don't do that often, it might be awkward at first. But nobody ever died of awkwardness. Okay? So you can go and you can speak about the Lord. If you haven't spoken to your Lord, to, about the Lord with your adult children in a while, speak to them about the Lord. Eat with them. Spend time with them. So, so we, may have to, we may have to confess our sin. But you know what, what is so hopeful about the picture of a garden? Is if you look at a garden and you see that it's all a mess, today you can begin sowing and cultivating something different. And deserts don't turn into gardens overnight. But God blesses when we sow and when we cultivate. It may be slow. It may be hard at first. But every time you sow righteousness and every time you weed out those things that are wrong, God blesses that. God will bless that. He notices your faithfulness. And he'll bless it. So... We see that the man is supposed to be a priest there, working in the garden, working and keeping. And in verse 16, is this incredible provision. God says to him, the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. All these trees that I made, every different kind that's delightful to look at, and is delightful to eat, you can eat it. Eat as much as you want, eat to your heart's content. Eat as much as you want. You know, there has never been a good reason to sin against God. You know, the, the, the world, there's never been a good reason to sin against God. There has never been an excuse to sin against God. There in the garden, God gave the man everything. There was no reason for the man to ever turn from God. There was no reason for the man ever to distrust God. There was no reason for the man ever to disobey, the, disobey God. It's the same with you. I... It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. And I, I have been in counseling with people where over and over again they attempt to excuse their sin because of some circumstance. There is no circumstance that excuses sin. There is absolutely no circumstance that excuses sin. There has never been a reason for mankind, for any person to sin against God. God has provided for us. God God stands with a willing heart, willing to forgive all those who turn to him. There is no reason to sin against God. And then there is this command, though. One command, verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat, because in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Well, we already have been introduced in verse 9, these two trees in the middle of the garden. One is the tree of life. Which I think is supposed to be self-explanatory. Like this, you eat of this tree and you experience life. You continue to experience the life that God has given you. This is, yeah, this is the tree that gives life. By experience, I think. And this tree over here, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the tree through which you experience the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of this, you will experience evil. Because you will have committed it. And you have disobeyed God, and the disobedience, uh, disobedience to God leads to death. It says that in the day that you eat of it, you will die. I don't think that means that uh, and there was even this intention that, bam, he was supposed to die. It just means that he was doomed to die. It's not immediate, but it is a certainty. When he eats of this tree, he will die. And he didn't have to. That's the point. The two trees right there in the middle of the garden. He could have had life. Over and over again, when the covenant is, is restated in the Old Testament, there is this choose between life and death. Choose to obey God and have life, or choose to disobey God and have death. 
There it is, right in the middle of the garden. Choose, choose life or choose death. And you know, there is this covenant-like structure there in, in verse 17. A covenant is a, a very solemn agreement between God and human beings, primarily. The way that the Bible talks about it, a, a very solemn agreement between two parties. And there are blessings for obedience and cursings for disobedience. And here, here is Adam. He's presented with this, with this covenant-like structure. Sometimes it's called the covenant of works or the covenant of creation. And here he's presented with it. Obey or disobey, life or death. I think it would be good here to try and clarify some of the differences between human nature, between before the fall, after the fall, and then also after God even causes us to be born again. You know, Adam, there, before the fall, before sin enters the world, he is, he is in a state of innocence, okay? He has the capacity to obey or disobey. He has the ability to obey or disobey. He's right there. Uh, it's hard to explain... Uh, until we get to chapter 3, why he would ever disobey. But he has, he has the ability to obey or to disobey. After the fall, after sin enters the world, human beings do not have this same kind of freedom. All human beings sin. All human beings disobey God's commands. That doesn't mean that human beings are as bad as they could possibly be. That, that, we should thank God for that because that is due to God's restraining evil. In fact, lots of people, including people who do not believe in Jesus Christ, are, pick up the wording here, relatively good people. That is, when compared to all other people, they're, they're, they look good. They're relatively good. And yet they are not good in the sense of being able to please God or to meet God's moral standards. Even people who outwardly do what is right, who keep God's commands outwardly, do not do so for the right reasons. And so no one who is in Adam has the ability to obey or disobey in the same way that Adam did. That's why all people disobey. And the corruption that entered the world with Adam is passed down from generation to generation so that everyone who comes from Adam, who is in Adam, disobeys. They still have a kind of human freedom in which they are always able to choose what they want, and yet they always want the wrong thing. But what God does, what God does by His grace, by His Spirit, working through the Word, what, what Jesus Christ has purchased for us is that God causes people to be born again. God gives people a new heart. God transforms people from the inside out. He makes them into new creations. And this is who we are in Jesus Christ. Who we are in Adam is people who cannot obey God's word in a way that meets God's standards. We cannot be made righteous before God by obeying his commands. But who we are in Christ are people who are now, because of the renewing work of the Spirit, because the Spirit indwells us and lives inside of us and empowers us, are people who can obey God's commands and obey God, God's commands for the right reasons. That's why 1 John 5, 3 can say something like, this is, how, this is how you show God that you love Him, by keeping His commands. And His commands are not burdensome. Why aren't they burdensome? Because God has... God has implanted in us a desire to obey Him. God does not, uh, never coerces anyone or forces anyone to do anything, but God transforms people from the inside out. And while in this life we will always be struggling with remaining sin, and we will continue uh, to stumble in many ways before Jesus Christ returns, what we are looking forward to is a time when we will be made perfectly obedient, when, when what is started in us will be perfected, where there will be no sin. And we're back here. God is bringing us even, even back. In fact, he's bringing us to a place that is beyond even what Adam had. Adam had the ability to obey or disobey. When, we, when Jesus Christ returns, we will be perfected and glorified in the sense that we will never disobey God ever again. There will never be sin again. Sin will be completely and totally eradicated. Isn't that a wonderful thing? 
And look right here. There is this. There is this covenant here. There is this agreement. And disobedience leads to death. And even if you haven't read Genesis 3, you can look around the world and know a lot of what the rest of the story is like. But there was one man who was not like Adam. He was not in a garden. He was actually in the desert. And he went out into the desert. He was driven there by the Holy Spirit. And there he met Satan face to face. And there he was tempted in every way that Adam was, in every way in which every human being is. He was tempted to the fullest. And yet he did not disobey. In every way, in every way that Adam disobeyed, Jesus Christ went into the desert and he beat Satan on his own turf and he won life for us. For those who have disobeyed, Jesus Christ obeyed. So lots of people wonder, well, if this, God knows that eventually the man is going to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He knows that death is going to happen there. Why did he put it there? Why did he put it? It's because life comes by obedience to God's word. You know what Jesus said in the desert when he was tempted? He quoted Deuteronomy. He said, man should not live by bread alone. Or man, maybe he could say to Adam, man doesn't live by all these, eating from all these trees. He doesn't eat from drink, drinking from these rivers. He lives by obedience to God's word. We live by obedience to God's word. In obedience to God's commands is life. In a relationship of loving obedience to God as our Father, there is life. And when we depart from that, we find death. Let's commit ourselves to God's word. So God formed a man and he planted a garden. And then he made a woman. Let's look at verses 18 through 24, 25. 18 through 25. This is what it says. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and we're not ashamed. There in verse 18, God, everything that God has made has been seen as good up until this point. But then God identifies one thing that is not good. One thing that is not good. It's not good for man to be alone. And you know, I, I, although these verses are primarily about men's and women's roles and about marriage as God intended it, you know, God did not intend any person to be alone. God intended people for relationships. So even for those of us who have not, who aren't married, or maybe for people who are widowed, God intends for us to have relationships. He intends for us to pursue friendship and family. And for those of us who have families, we are supposed to show hospitality to others, inviting people into our families. That's how we, that's how we extend family to others. And for those who follow Jesus Christ, even those who have to give up, some relationships, God, Jesus Christ promises them that they will be given a hundredfold more in mothers and brothers and sisters in family through God's people. So that's for everybody. Nobody was intended to be alone. Nobody should be alone. Everyone can have relationships by coming to Jesus Christ. So there he says, you should not be alone. And then he proves it to the man, you're not supposed to be alone. So he has all of the animals come to him. He gets every beast of the field and all the livestock and all the birds to come to him. And he names them. This is one of the ways that, that the, the man demonstrates his authority. He's the gardener. He's in charge of this garden. He's in charge of the world. He is, he is God's steward. God is the king. The man is God's steward under the king. He is supposed to rule over the entire world. And he shows his authority over the animals by naming them. 
And they come before him and he names them. But when he looks at them, there's no helper. There's no helper there. And you know what, men? You need help. You need help. You were, you were made to have authority in the garden. You were made to be in charge. You were made to lead well. And you are, at the same time, not self-sufficient. You are not to be independent. You are supposed to be intertwined with someone else. You are supposed to be intertwined with your wife. You need a helper. God knew that you need a helper even before you knew that you needed a helper. The same way that Adam, God knew that Adam needed a helper. And then he proves to him, you need a helper. You need a helper. Sense the need for a helper. And rely, rely upon your helper. Trust your helper. Love your helper. But he proves to him, Adam, you don't have a helper. There's no helper here for you. So he makes him go into a deep sleep. And from his side, he takes a rib. And, and, and he forms a, a woman from the rib. He forms a woman from the side of, of the man. And there he, he brings the woman to the man. And, he, and then, the, then the man who's been asleep the whole time, he doesn't know that this is coming. This is a surprise. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You complete me. You know? You, you are my counterpart. You are the one made for me. You were, you were made for me. We fit. Man and woman, husband and wife were made to fit together. Physically, socially, spiritually, everything about their lives were supposed to come together in a one flesh union. This is the basis for marriage. This is the basis for, for all society that God intended for a man to leave his family. To in some way disconnect from them. Not that he's not going to honor his parents anymore, but there is now a new priority in his life. And it is his wife. And he is going to commit himself to his wife and to a new family unit. And they're going to cling to one another. And, and Jesus uses this. Jesus reaffirms this as the basis for marriage. For this, this intertwining of life. Everything about their lives. Physically, financially, spiritually, socially. It's all together. God intended for them to be united in this way. This is the reason why for husbands, God tells us, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, hey, love your wife like you love your own body. Because she is like your own body. Nobody ever had his own body. So you better take care of your wife. And wives, your husbands need help. I'm sure you already knew that as well. Your husbands need help. And you were intended to be their helper. Is that the identity that you have about yourself? Do you think of yourself as your husband's helper? I, I, think, I think that for most women, they don't think of themselves that way. I think even for so many Christian women, they don't think of themselves as, I am here to help my husband do his work of working and keeping. You know, and, and even, even Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians 11. He says that the, the woman was made from the man and for the man. Now all men are born from women, so no man is ever independent from a woman. And yet, as a basis for the man's leadership and his authority in the family, Paul says the woman was made from the man and for the man. To help him. To help him. And so how do you help your husband? It's really simple. It really is. When I was just thinking about this, what the New Testament says about how to help your husband, it's really simple. Submit to his leadership. Ephesians 5. Submit to your husbands. Don't submit to any man. Submit to your husband. Submit to him. And just ask yourself, am I easy to lead? Is it a joy for my husband to lead me? Or do I make it difficult? Do I make it, do I make it difficult for my husband to make decisions? Do I make it difficult for him to lead? 
you, you were supposed to be, not that there would never be a time that you would ever, that you would ever bring something to your husband that might be a matter for him to look into, but the overall pattern of your life is supposed to be glad submission to his leadership, gladly following him, making it a joy for him to lead you. First Peter 3 says that you are to respect him. Do you respect your husband? When you speak to your husband, when you speak about your husband, do you speak to him and about him respectfully? Do you think respectful thoughts about your husband? Do you think that, do you, what do you think that your husband would think? Not that he's the best judge, but he might be a good place to start. And then Titus 2 tells you to love your husband. Does your husband know that you love him? Do, do, you, do you work to make your husband know that you, you love him? He is first. He is supposed to be first in your life. Ask yourself. Ask yourself every day. Is what I am doing, is it helping my husband lead? There's this one book that I like to use in premarital counseling. And, and one of the chapters is, he, he says, starts off with this. This illustration, he says, basically, when you find out what is uh, called for from you as a man, you're going to want to quit. What's expected from men to actually live up to that, to be this kind of, uh, this kind of, of man who, who, who controls and does everything right and makes sure that everybody under him who leads well and makes sure that everything under him flourishes and guards against every intruder. And that is huge. And why does your husbands need help to do that? God intended you to be their helper. And just about men's and women's roles in general, I think just a couple of things that I want to encourage us to do. Number one, I think we should take Jesus' warning in Matthew 7 about sinfully judging one another seriously when it comes to men's and women's roles. Take the log out of your own eye before you point out the speck in your spouse's eye. Most of us, most of the time, ought to be caught up in what is my job? How do I lay down my life for my wife? How do I love my wife the way I love my own body? How do I bring up, bring up my children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord? How do I take care of my responsibilities? And most of the time, wives, not trying to find fault with your husband, but instead thinking, how can I help my husband? How, what am I most aware of? Am I most aware of my, my husband's faults, or am I mostly thinking about how, how can I help my husband? And the other thing is that there's a, this old uh, joke that preachers tell that the, the man is the head of the home and the woman is the neck. He turns, she turns the head which way it's supposed to go. You know, there might have been a time when it was okay to joke about men's and women's roles. This is not the time to joke about men's and women's roles in our world. You know, almost every form of suffering in the world... Especially in our society, almost every form of suffering, lack of relationships, poverty, poor education, in almost a sense, a sense of shame and guilt in one's life, almost every form of suffering in our society, men's and women's roles play a major factor in that. The confusion and the distortion that is in our world about men's and women's roles and about marriage and about family. It plays a major factor in the reason why people are suffering. You want to help people not suffer? You want to love your neighbor? Man, we can't chuckle about men's and women's roles anymore. I think, we, I think uh, and you don't have to do this. I'm not going to jump on you if you make a joke or anything. I'm just saying... We, we might need a moratorium on jokes about, hey, this is you know, somebody wearing the pants in the family or something like that. We, we don't need to joke about that anymore. We're in a time when we need to clarify and celebrate what men and women are supposed to be doing. Clarity. Celebration. We're not ashamed of it, and we're not unclear about it. Men are supposed to be governing and guarding. Leading and loving. 
Women are supposed to be following and helping. Clarity. Not levity. And we see there in verses 24 and 25, as I've already alluded to, the, the picture of marriage there. And you know, there is this beautiful intimacy there. This beautiful picture of they're, they're naked and unashamed. They're not ashamed. The rest of scripture, the rest of life, nakedness is a, is a cause for shame. Not here. Not in the garden. A perfect relationship. God intended a husband and a wife to have a perfect relationship. A, a, a relationship of love and intimacy and commitment. I was amazed when I, just that word there when I was reading Proverbs 5. That word intoxicate. To be intoxicated with one another. To be intoxicated with your wife. To cultivate this kind of this sense of devotion to your wife. And you know, a lot of that has been lost by sin, but by God's grace, you know, that kind of intimacy and love and commitment can be recovered in your marriage by God's grace. And it can be furthered. It can be increased. Trust God for that. And now what am I talking about? Am I talking about marriage at all? What does Paul say in Ephesians 5? It's not about, it's not about marriage. It's not about, I'm not just talking about husbands and wives. I'm talking about Christ and the church. He says that marriage was always intended to be a living parable of what Christ does for the church. Jesus Christ came and gave his life for the church. And now the church gladly submits and follows Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we're washed, we're sanctified, we're purified by the word of God. Let's commit ourselves to Christ. Let's commit ourselves to Christ by carrying out our roles, our assignments as God has given them to us. In a loving, glad way. Commit ourselves to following Jesus Christ by carrying those roles.